Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. gentle listeners all this week i have a special treat for you a special treat with a purpose though i must admit we're going to talk today about the extraordinary life and times of margaret cavendish who started off in a minor gentry family in 1623 when she was born and went on to become a poet playwright natural philosopher and everything that flows from being the duchess of newcastle and something of a fashion icon as well before dying rather unexpectedly in 1673, so she went through some times. Meanwhile, if you are intrigued by what you're about to hear, and it is an extraordinary story I have to tell you, then by simply becoming a member of the History of England, you will be able to hear more about her and her achievements and the tumultuous time in which she lived. So, to talk about Margaret Cavendish, I am joined by an expert. Hello, Margaret. How are you? Hello. Hello, David. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's absolutely lovely to have you here, Margaret. I'm so grateful. So, just so everybody knows, Margaret is a professor of English at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, which, you tell me, is one of the most rebellious colonies. She earned her PhD in English and Humanities at Stanford University and specializes now in early modern British literature, including Shakespeare, John Donne, George Herbert, and Margaret Cavendish. So, before we get on with the main event, Margaret, how long have you been interested in your namesake? Is this a recent thing or have you been, have you been interested in her for ages? Uh, when I was a graduate student, and I didn't realize this at the time, there was a huge uptick in interest in Margaret Cavendish. This is the 80s and 90s. She had been castigated and ignored for centuries for a number of reasons. And at that time, it was sort of second wave feminism was looking at a lot of women who had not been uh, who had been out of print for a long time, or sometimes who had never been in print. Uh, and we're looking at these sometimes very difficult to read, either manuscripts or early printed texts, and editing them and making them available for scholars to to use uh, in, a, in a more efficient way. And so a lot of these women, Lisa Saracen, Katie Whitaker, uh, Gwenna Williams, were instrumental in bringing her to the fore. And I remember going to a conference where we had a session on her in about 1996 or seven. So I've been interested in her since I was um, an early, in my early years of teaching. And uh, she is somebody that covers so many genres, which is kind of part of the problem. But it's been a, a long time and I've been interested in her in sort of the history of science and in the literature and uh, as, a, as a woman trying to live through the Civil War. So she hits a lot of uh, interest buttons for me. Wonderful. Fantastic. But look, with your permission, I will defy Julie Andrews, and I'm going to start not at the beginning, but in the middle. So in May 1667, 
Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle, was in London. and Everyone wanted to see her. Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary that she was followed and crowded upon by coaches all the way she went. So, if I take you back to 1667, would you have been there? And why was everyone so excited? And why is Margaret Cavendish of interest to us 400 years later? That is three questions. So sorry about that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to start with Pepys, who, as we know, had his own uh, particular mm, proclivities about women. Uh, when Margaret and William Cavendish, I'm going to call them by their first names because there's so many people named Cavendish in this story that you have to figure out who's who. Uh, and so many William Cavendishes, I should say, at yes. in various points in time. They had come back to England in about 1666, 65, and they had repurchased Newcastle House in London. And they came to the theater and she wore an outfit that it, it was scarlet, exposed her breasts very, you know, I mean, I think it'd be shocking now, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I should say, though, that for under an earlier king, not under Charles, but under James, whose court, as we know, was a little uh, louche. I love that word. Uh, the ladies of the court, not the queen, but the ladies of the court would appear in masks in front of people in very revealing costumes, sheer or exposing their breasts or something. So this was not an unknown phenomenon among court ladies. In the theater, sitting in a box, yes. So she would kind of take something that was the acceptable practice and sort of move it into her own world. And I think she does this in a number of ways. But Pepys, I'm sure, just was wanting to see her breasts. So, so by this time, she has published, since 1653, scientific writings, poetry, verse, plays. And I think there are people who are interested in her for that reason. Also, this is William Cavendish, who famously, along with Prince Rupert, lost the Battle of Marston Moor. So I think from kind of a gossip sheet point of view and from a historic point of view and from a literary point of view, this is the couple to to look at for, for everybody along the scale for many, many reasons. And, and it's true. People would be running alongside the carriage to try to get a glimpse of her. Um, again, I think the breasts have something to do with that. But, but she was, in her own words, a singularity. Yeah. And everybody wanted to see what that looked like. Bearing all that in mind, bearing in mind her celebrity, why then do you think Mar Virginia Woolf, who had taken interest in her most later, why I think she would write, the crazy duchess became a bogey to frighten clever girls with? What was going on there? Um, yes. I, I want to point out that the word that starts that sentence is evidently. This is from Woolf's uh, A Room of One's right. Own. She is writing about the difficulty, if people are not familiar with this text, the difficulty of a woman being able to do anything professional. Like, I want everybody to go away. I will sit in a room and I will do my writing. And she talks about women who were trying to write under difficult circumstances. And so really, if you look at the context of this chapter, she's very sympathetic to Margaret and is quite angry at the way people have looked at her. So that's why it's evidently the crazy duchess became a bogey to frighten clever girls with. Virginia Woolf is nothing if not sarcastic. And this is, this is her being sarcastic about the way that Margaret was treated. So in talking about Margaret Cavendish, she says that in her passion for poetry, she was disfigured and deformed by the same causes as other women of her time, just social oppression, lack of education. She says uh, she should have had a microscope put in her hand. She should have been taught to look at the stars and re scientifically. Her wits returned with solitude and freedom. No one checked her. No one taught her. And so the end of this 
section, she's also talking about Dorothy Osborne, who wrote very critically about Margaret. But this is Wolf's comment about the two of them. And so, since no woman of sense and modesty could write books, Dorothy, who was sensitive and melancholy, the very opposite of the Duchess in temper, wrote nothing. So this is how a woman had to be to write. People Mm. thought she was crazy. And I think that's a common trope applied to women for a number of reasons historically. So this is a lesson of taking things in context and also understanding how Virginia Woolf talks about people. So I, I, I think she's very sympathetic to her, really. Right. Okay. So let us start at the beginning then and uh, do, the, do the Julie Andrews thing. Margaret Lucas, as she was before she was married, was born in 1623. Just a bit of biography here. And she came from a well-off, you know, minor gentry family in Colchester, Essex. And she seems to have had a very happy family life as the youngest of eight children, would you believe? Until 1642, the family were caught up in the Stour Valley riots in Essex and the civil wars turned her world upside down and off her whole family. She then, cut a long story short, becomes a lady-in-waiting to Charles I's queen, Henrietta Maria, in Oxford, in exile, as it were, and then in real exile in France. Looking at all of that, a lot going on there, but uh, how do you think this period of her life affected and formed Margaret's later writing? How did she react to court life, for example? Well, the fact that she got there in the first place is very surprising. Let me just say something about her, a little bit of hindsight. It is likely that she suffered from a couple of things which we would be very sympathetic to now. She probably was dyslexic. Um, There are some, uh, there's a letter from Mary Evelyn, John Evelyn's wife, talking about her. And and, and so Margaret will say about herself. She was very, very awkward socially. She was very shy. She did not like to speak in public, did not speak much at all, uh, except to her family. They were so close, as you mentioned, that she says, even after my brothers and sisters got married, we mostly just stayed with ourselves. They didn't even go see their in-laws very much. They were very, very close, which is a great thing, but also kept her socially um, restricted. So she wants to go to Henrietta Maria's court. The whole family says, no, you're not ready for this. She, she wants to go. Uh, as I said, Mary Evelyn, listening to her, said that she would all of a sudden burst out with odd sayings and, and, and be very awkward. And, and then she used the word obscenities. Mary Evelyn says this. So there is some suggestion she might have had. It's, it's a condition called coprolalia. It's, it's, a, it's a one possible aspect of Tourette's syndrome. Coprolalia is when you start bursting out with things that you never would say normally, like swearing at people. And again, Margaret doesn't say this, but other people heard this. So this is the person at, you know, a very young age who is going to Oxford to be with the queen. I I think it was um, good for her, frankly, to be out of the area because, as you say, it got very violent um, back where her family was. And then a couple years later, they're off to France. Again, just the, the biggest change for someone like her. You can imagine. So I I think this was, in addition to her very happy, cloistered childhood among her large family, being the baby, she is suddenly thrown into everything that is the opposite. She is supposed to be treated like an adult in in the most social situation and then in a foreign country. And Mm -hmm. I mean, with her difficulties in speaking, I don't think her French was probably very good. So it was was formative, both in her uh, political views, her views about uh, relationships and how people act in the court, 
which she's generally not very happy about. But it gives her many, many opportunities, which again, you know, this is a whole series of wonderful karmic coincidences that set her up to do the things that she did. So it was, it was terrific for her professionally in, in some ways, eventually. She joins a long line of people, I think, who moan horribly about being a court. Peter Blois, Walter de la Map in the 13th and 14th century have exactly the same problem as poor old Margaret in a way. But despite the fact that she clearly hates it, doesn't she? When she's in France, something major, she meets somebody who also changed, changes her life and her opportunities. Tell us about that. Yes. Yes. So she, she, they go to France in 1644. And in 1645, she's married to someone considerably older than she is, who has five children. His oldest daughter is two years older than Margaret. Never a great social situation to be in. And, and no one could understand this relationship at all. No one ever did understand this relationship at all. He, uh, you know, is in France because he has lost, as I mentioned, the Basel Barsen Moor. Although I, I think it's not entirely the fault that he has been laid on him by, by history in some respects. Um, so he's not in great favor at the moment. And people think he's sort of, I mean, she's 22. He's not cradle snatching, but people thought this was odd. It was a great marriage. It, it, it was a great marriage. He adored her. He thought she was smart. And, and she said he would, he would help me. I could talk to him. So the only person, Charles and her brother-in-law, Charles Cavendish, and it was William Cavendish, she could actually have a relaxed conversation with outside of her own biological family. And so I think they were the most unlikely match, but a match just made in heaven in many ways. It is rather heartwarming, isn't it? I was one of the things that struck me, though, was that she frequently complains about a woman's lot in marriage all the way through her writings, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. But that can't have been a reflection of her own marriage. What was she writing about there? Where did that come from? And did it reflect her marriage or not? I think she saw, I mean, she annoyingly continues in every piece of writing to tell you how wonderful William is. Right. And I think that is, <laughs> that is to show, show women, yeah, this is actually possible. Uh, and so many of you have terrible situations. She writes a play called uh, The Convent of Pleasure, which I can talk about a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But part of what is in there are little vignettes about all the terrible things that happened to women, many of which she did not experience, like being in childbirth without a midwife, having a child die. There's all these terrible things that happened to women because of marriage some of which is because the people they marry, but some of which is because of the nature of the institution of marriage, uh, which she objects to. But she did not have a conventional marriage. Let's just say that first. So I think all of this is, is it's, not a ref it's like the opposite reflection of what she had. She saw other women experiencing and very much bemoaned that for other women. I want to say to this, she is very much a classist. She right. did not think all women were intelligent or capable of doing things, which I, I mean, is probably true, but she would say so. But, you know, she's very much uh, in, in the notion of there are aristocrats and there are other people. And that is just, she's also a product of her age. She's not a Democrat. Yes. <laughs> she's not yes. a small D Democrat at all. Right. But she does see across the board, women have a pretty bad lot meant much of the time in marriage. So through the 1640s, the Cavendishes live in some poverty and exile, though all things are relative. I'm not sure poverty to the Cavendishes is quite the same as poverty to an ordinary Colchester farm labourer, but you know, hey. 
1651, Margaret then returned to London for about 18 months in an unsuccessful attempt to gain some income. And then from Antwerp, she starts publishing, I think from Antwerp, you can correct me on that, with poems and fancies and philosophical fancies, I think it was called. So, Margaret, a very quick vignette again. How unusual was it for women to publish in 1651? How typical were her works? And what do these works tell us about her styles and interests? Three questions in one again. Okay. So, first, um, women did not publish. Um, I have a couple of numbers here. Uh, only 42 new books by women were printed in England between 1600 and 1640. Between 1653 and the time of her death in 1673, Margaret Cavendish published 23. Right. This is, again, it, incomprehensible to people. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say these were uh, financed by her husband. You know, this was, this was a time of, of, of self-publishing, which was fine. It was printed some in Antwerp, but they're all printed in London uh, later. So, yes, she is phenomenally odd hmm. in, in, many, in uh, every single way. And so you can see socially... Some people might take an affront at that. She shouldn't be doing this. Intellectually, who is this person who doesn't seem to have any education and isn't male? And, you know, maritally, even though she would say, and I think it was true, she would completely be obedient to her husband, since she was. He just had a different idea, as did she, of what obedience meant. And that means, you want to write a book? Honey, go write a book, and we'll publish that. Right. Uh, So, you know, again, by the time she comes back to London in the next decade, She's been famous for years and years, and, and she hasn't been in the country. So it, it's completely out of everybody's uh, realm of experience at this point. And Afro Bain, who we mm. think of as the, one of the first women, or maybe the first woman in England to support herself with her writing, Afro Bain did not publish under her name. Mm. So this is, oh, how could she possibly, you know, put her name on yeah. this stuff? Um, so she's ticking every box that people find outrageous. And what these what do these particular first works then tell us about where she's going and writing? What what do we learn about them? What do they talk and what do they tell us about her as a writer? Right. So uh, poems and fancies really initiates her publicly her interest in natural philosophy, which of course what we would call science today. And mm. and I just want to say something about natural philosophy in the 17th century. I mean, Newton believed in alchemy, right? This is this is this is the most fascinating century to me anyway, which, you know, it's why it takes so long to talk about it, as you know, because yeah. every single thing changes. Yes. From 1600, we have Elizabeth. 1700, we have William Third. Everything about life in England could not have been more different in those hundred years. Politics, literature, economics, religion, every single thing. So I, I think this is also indicative of what she's trying to do and as well as the men around her, she didn't write anything crazier scientifically than the men she was in conversation with, mm. but she was female. So, you know, it's like her clothing. I mean, other than the breasts thing, <laughs> if she did something, it was just considered weirder because she was a woman. But you can find these discussions of atomism and vitalism, which are, you know, from classical ideas about how the world is made up. These are in writings of many people around her, right? She actually changed her scientific views over time. She did not believe that the world was just sort of a mechanical thing uh, without any kind of sentience in nature. She believed in vitalism, which says that there's some sort of thing in things that makes them alive. Mm. 
And, and she believed this was throughout nature. So this is not unlike notions maybe of mind and, and body, but uh, she took that a little bit further. But it's actually very progressive, too. I mean, she didn't not think it, she she thought it was not inconceivable that animals had souls, mm-hmm. that animals had sentience, which I think was not a common view at this point. We can see that in the blazing world a little bit. So she she felt that nature, even vegetables and minerals, there was some degree of perception and knowledge in those things because they do things. So this is her first chance to get that out in the world in 1653. Yes, actually, for my sins, um, I went through the pain of reading a book about Thomas Hobbes, who was Simon, <laughs> Simon Mayo on a, there's a witty thing called Wittertainment here. It's about films. Anyway, Simon Mayo did it, apparently. He said it was the most boring thing he'd ever read. Anyway, um, and in the book, it said... What you need to remember about Hobbes and indeed Margaret Cavendish, of course, is that they had the scientific knowledge of a, you know, a primary school child. A primary school child yes. today would know more about science than the people yes. writing these books, which I thought, you know, I thought was a really interesting insight, you know, because certainly when I was at primary school, or oh, anyway. Okay. So. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Cavendishes then returned to London in 1660 with the Restoration and Charles II. And although William doesn't get the position at court, he thinks he richly deserves. Nonetheless, many of his states are returned. They're all very, very rich as well. He would be made a duke. She would be made a duchess. They are very grand. And they spend a lot of time on their estates, I think. So from 1655 and in the 1660s, then Margaret then becomes a very prolific author, as you, as you mentioned. And the breadth of her interesting subjects very widely. Tell us about her work and influences on her. And do you have a personal favorite in her works? Oh, yes. She started to branch off and, as you say, move into other genres and other things, but always maintaining an, ist- an interest in science, uh, no matter what she wrote. So in 16, 16- and again, context, in 1665, Robert Hooke publishes Micrographia. So some of this is about the toys. Galileo does invent the telescope, but he brings it to people's public attention just a few decades earlier. Then we have microscopes. So these are new tools of scientific discovery. Experimental uh, science is not part of classical natural philosophy. It's all just what you think about things. Observation was not useful. And, and I, I think there's, there's something in that. So Hook writes this thing about uh, how wonderful t- uh, microscopes are. And in 1666, she writes observations on experimental philosophy and the blazing world, which we'll get to in just a second. The observations on experimental philosophy was should be more correctly entitled a critique of experimental philosophy because she believed that these tools were deluding people. And it is true. As we know, microscopes actually show you things sort of upside down. I don't know how the lenses work myself, but, but I know as a non-scientist, I have to be taught how to look in a microscope properly and use it properly telescopes the same way. So her view and a lot of people's view is this distorts things. You're not actually seeing the thing as it is. And by the way, they don't help. You can't look inside things. 
They didn't have x-rays. She says, what good is this to see something bigger? It doesn't really tell me anything. So that's not mm. true, but it's not entirely wrong either. It does distort your vision of things, right? So she was very critical in this, in this work, observations on experimental philosophy, very critical of the Royal Society, which is brand new, and trying to prove themselves. Um, and, and they, frankly, they did do a lot of things like it, when they met, ooh, look at this two-headed calf. Okay, so there was some yeah. carnivalesque aspects to this a little bit, right? But they're trying to establish their authority. And, 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 but it was also very important to them to have people get together and see evidence Provable evidence, repeatable, provable, provable evidence. That's part of good scientific inquiry. That's what they were doing at these meetings. So she she goes to the Royal Society, as I think you mentioned. Um, she goes to the Royal Society in 1667. This is a total failure. Okay. She wanted to be invited. She got pressured to be invited. She appears with in a fancy dress with a huge train with several ladies with her, including a very famous court Italian court singer. There is a, a suggestion by Katie Whitaker that, and I, I don't think this is wrong, that she was actually trying to make fun of them. She dressed right. as if she was going to the theater or something, which it kind of is. They do a few experiments for her. She says, oh, wonderful, all wonderful, admirable, all admirable. Says almost nothing else, and she leaves. So they're like, well, this woman is ridiculous. She doesn't contribute anything. But but there is some suggestion by some people that she did this to, just to show how ridiculous what they did right. was. Mm -hmm. And again, she wasn't entirely wrong. So the next year, she, she writes on um, The Blazing World in 1666. Let's just talk about that for a second. This is 1666 is, yeah. is a huge year for people sort of religiously was because of the 666, there was a lot of conversation about uh, mm. the end of the world coming. And then in September is the Great Fire. So the world is sort of on edge here anyway. So she publishes Blazing World in 1666. And this is a work of utopia. It's in science fiction. It is a romance in, in the sense of fantastical adventures kind of romance, which is the way what it really meant originally. It's, again, a critique of the Royal Society. So it, it is a wonderful piece of prose. It is, there's parts I tend to skip over a tiny bit, to be perfectly honest with you, but it is fascinating to see her compare England to what could be, but it's also not a utopia because nothing in this book is perfect. So that probably is my favorite and is one uh, that is mm. well, well read nowadays by college students, yeah. for instance, uh, because it, it, it is really so groundbreaking that people didn't even know what to do with it. Um, sorry, that is about a five minute answer yeah. to your question. I apologize. That's a fantastic answer. It gets referred to a lot, actually, the Blazing World. I've seen it around quite a lot. It was where I got to hear about uh, Margaret Cavendish first before actually you brought her up. Um, is one of the first things as well, yeah. So it seems an extraordinary piece of work. You're focusing on the science as well. There's it's quite a range to uh, her work, isn't she? And she's been described as a, a proto-feminist. There seems to be, from what I can read, a bit of toing and froing about that. Is she, isn't she, whatever. What's your view about that? Uh, right. So, again, she was very lucky, and, and she knows that. Um, she does not think all women are mentally capable of doing what she does. And she doesn't think all women are socially capable of doing what she does. They don't have husbands like William with the money to publish. They don't have access to Gassendi and Descartes and all these people that she, she 
There's some question. She keeps saying she doesn't like to read, but it's very clear she does read a lot of these things. So Blazing World, she talks about Lucien. She talks about Cerno de Bergerac, their sort of utopia descriptions of places. So she reads things. But uh, proto-feminist, I think that's a little... She did a lot of things that other people didn't do, but she didn't really think other people should do them. So that's very proto and not maybe quite so much feminist. But she proved that you could. And she was so brave because Mm. she was so criticized. It was just merciless criticism of this woman in her lifetime, even. Tell us more about that. Tell us about the sort of things that she gets subjected to. Yeah, so it, it's it's the criticism of her dress, of the way she speaks. We have a, a letter from Mary Evelyn, a lot of people talking about um, uh, her, the fact that she should not be publishing, the fact that her her science is, is bad. Again, everybody's science was kind of bad. So I, I think everything she did was heightened by the fact that she was female, that, you know, for some people, because she was a royalist at certain points in time, because she was so committed to establishing her husband's reputation in history. People said, I got a little tired of listening to her talk about her husband. Um, <laughs> so that there's a number of points on I, which I think she could yes. be genuinely annoying, um, even in conversation. And she was, again, yeah. an awkward in conversation. So she doesn't really hit the buttons of what women should be doing at all, anything. Women should not be doing any of the things that she does. And women should be doing things that she doesn't do very well. So no one really knows what to make of her. And I don't honestly know that outside of her family, she had really any female friends. She doesn't really talk about that. Right. She just... But she doesn't want them because she has William. Uh, also, she had no children. Yeah. So William's in number. He has five children. But he's also older at this point. Mm. We do not know if it was him or her. Uh, she, I will say, too, she probably was also anorexic. She talks about being uninterested in food and uh, that she only ate boiled chicken and water. Yeah, no wonder she's not interested in food. Also, probably that make her very popular at social. So I, I think, she, and she suffered deeply from what we now would call depression. Big surprise, you know, in the way her life went, and yeah. you know. So I think there, uh, you know, being childless, of course, is, and and her mother had eight children. And her husband has five other children. So what is wrong with you? Every yeah. single thing. She's not doing what women should be doing. And that's a source of criticism in those days, isn't it, as well? In a, in a rather nasty way, almost like a judgment of God sort of thing. Society can be quite merciless about that, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And she, she doesn't really say this, but she did not get on too well with her stepchildren. They were quite suspicious of her as a gold digger. I think they got a little better with one of the sons, and she was quite fond of uh, her step-grandchildren, which is sweet. Uh, but that could not have been easy either. Yeah. So her breadth is quite astonishing as well, isn't it? We've focused on the science a lot, and I, and I can understand that because it is amazing. I mean, she hobnobs, she Descartes comes to supper, doesn't he? Or Hobbes comes to supper. You know, these are names you think, wow, hang on. <laughs> Where's this extraordinary? Right, right. So the science is fascinating, but her breadth is incredible, isn't it? Um, you know, she writes plays, she writes uh, lots of poems. Tell me about her plays. Do you get on with them? And they weren't performed, were they? Yeah. Why is that? No. So these are referred to as closet dramas. Um, some of this, honestly, David, is because the theaters were closed, you know, during the Commonwealth mm. period and they open up again. But again, she wants to, she wants to do things in a different way from other people. 
And I, do, I think she would have been horrified at any of her things being performed. That would have been, you know, she has this weird mix of being like very exposing herself in public in some ways and very not in other ways, right? But she wants people to read. By the way, you know, even something like Paradise Lost is actually a closet drama. It, it's almost completely in dialogue. So this, this is um, not an uncommon genre, which we don't really have now. So the cognitive pleasure is my particular favorite for a number of reasons. It has been performed. Uh, Gwenna Williams, the scholar Gwenna Williams did a performance of this at the University of York um, in the 90s, 96 or 7. And I think that's actually filmed. And I've seen images from that. But it is difficult to perform. It is, you know, it, it goes very long speeches, kind of Archbishop of Canterbury in, in Henry V's kind of long speeches. Right, okay. Which are too long. And I, this would not have ever gone on stage anyway, because what it shows is it's, 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 it's oh, so gender bendy. A, a woman decides that she uh, wants to create a, a convent for unmarried women, who, which is devoted to pleasure and nature. And I know we want to think like uh, the castle anthrax in Monty Python, but not that. This is for, women could be freed to uh, read, to, to perform plays, to, you know, have intellectual pursuits unhindered by these social conventions and by men who seem to cause all the social conventions. Mm. Again, not William, but everybody else. And what happens is it gets infiltrated by several men who were after the women. And there's an interesting, and then a princess shows up and sort of they have this sort of uh, same-sex courtship. And as it turns out, the princess is a man and they get married in the end. So it's like a Shakespearean mm. comedy, right? There's There's costume changes and, and gender switching. But the whole point is it reinforces the social and political norm. There is a question at the end of Convent of Pleasure whether that is a great thing. So she does actually leave that question more open than Shakespeare ever does. But she has these little vignettes in there. This is what I was talking about before. Little vignettes of a, a, a woman whose husband has left her, a woman whose husband beats her, a woman in childbirth, in, in having terrible childbirth and no one can find a midwife. A woman whose whose child has just died. All of the terrible things that women go through because of men. And then we can go into the convent of pleasure and be free of all that. And truthfully, this is something that is partly true of actual convents back in the day, yeah. right? This is where women could be educated. They were teachers and nurses and serving the church. And there was nothing like that in the Protestant world. So she's, I think, trying to find some way for a, a women's college. And there's, you know, she talks about Ben Johnson. Uh, she loves Ben Johnson. And Ben Johnson actually made, makes fun of women collegians, he calls them, who want to do something like this. But I, I think I think in point of fact, he probably would have been more sympathetic to this idea. So it's this whole fantasy about what women could do if we would just leave them alone yeah. <laughs> and let them do their thing. And again, I, that, that couldn't be put on stage. They wouldn't allow that on stage. Right. So this is how she's able to get out her um, her ideas in in some dialogue as opposed to in sort of a novel form. But doesn't William Cavendish have one of his plays put on and doesn't Peeps then sort of diss it because he thinks it's Margaret's? Have I got that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is so funny because there are people who think that William wrote Margaret's things and vice versa, right. which I find sort of charming in yeah. a way. I mean, Peeps... I think, I don't know if Peeps thought she wrote it because he didn't like it. Uh, William was actually a fairly accomplished writer himself. Again, we, 
we want people to be in boxes. And so it's so funny. There was the notion of the Renaissance person in the 16th Mm. century. You could be Sydney and do all these things. 17th century, that seems to start to break apart a little bit. And I'm not saying that William was Sydney, but he wasn't bad. And and he shared this. This is one of their shared uh, interests, right? He also, as you, as I'm sure you know, sponsored two masks uh, at one at Welbeck and one at Bolsover for Charles before the Troubles, so to speak, um, 1634. And and those were entertainments mm-hmm. he put on for the king at his own expense in his homes. So he's very interested in theatrical productions and has actually quite a bit of experience with them. You know, I don't think Peeps is disposed to like anything that they do, to be perfectly honest with you. It's sort of Peepsy thing. You can't be sour people, can't eat a lad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, I mean, it's fantastic. And Margaret, we've talked a little bit about why she's so celebrity and talking about Peeps again. Um, You know, he says the whole story of this lady is a romance and all she does is is romantic. You've talked about her dress, but also her writing gets some recognition does it and if not exactly recognition no notoriety and then how does that go on through history how does she then get dealt with because she acquires a tag of mad madge at one stage doesn't she right right and i th- i think unfortunately so no one called her madge in her lifetime right. william calls her peg doesn't he he calls her peg it's it's sweet you know but i i, I share this but i don't like their names <laughs> uh, she was she was no one called her Madge. I think I think it may be Charles Lamb who might have referred to her by the name Madge at one point. And then the Mad thing sort of gets attached to that. I'm not sure if we could figure out. Katie Whitaker said that you can't really figure out who first says that for whatever reason. But that's like it's it's like the word, it's like the phrase the dark ages. People later stick that on something that they don't like. I would say notoriety is a good word to describe her reputation in her lifetime i think she sort of cared but she sort of didn't because she says at the end of blazing world i may not be richard the third or charles the second but i am margaret the first which is would have been literally true but but she she definitely has no problem with seeing herself as a complete anomaly and boy i don't know how many of us would be able to sit with that uh, knowing that everything you did was probably going to be criticized and you did it anyway with this very supportive family. Yeah, I, I just, just the fact that she just didn't curl up in a ball and stop yes. is, is really remarkable. So later in, in the centuries, she sort of gets forgotten about it in the in the 18th century. You know, neoclassical literary standards are, are going to just be horrified by any word that she wrote and any anything that she did. Uh, and then she gets picked up a little bit when Charles Lamb starts writing about women writers in the 19th century. And then Wolf starts to pick her up. And again, we get a little misreading, I think, of Wolf in the 20th century. And I think it isn't really, honestly, till the 1980s that she starts getting read at all. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, we have to have access to these texts, right? Yeah. And they were not being printed for people to read. So this is always a problem with women writers. There's a wonderful database that's been going on for decades called Women Writers Online. And they, their point is to put these women in accessible form who we cannot get access to any other way. So just access, I think, will dispel a lot of these things because you can go read it for yourself now. 
So it's it, hopefully we'll get rid of Mad Madge one day. Yes, hopefully, hopefully so. So there's, um, and I think, isn't there a project at the moment? Isn't there a complete set of her works about to come out? Yes, I, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. And boy, that would be a yeah. lot. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, I have, but you know, bits and pieces of things of hers. Um, but yeah, it, and again, trying to find a, a decent printing of this to to go by, and then her spelling is, is atrocious and. Oh, yes. I, I think I said to you at one point, the girl, the girl does not like terminal punctuation. Right. So learning how to read Margaret Cavendish is a challenge. Like a lot of early modern writing, you need to train your brain to stop at a semicolon <laughs> because you're not going to find a period for a while. And this is like whole paragraphs. Both of the books I read uh, both complain about her handwriting and her lack of punctuation. And doesn't Margaret herself get cross that um, people get cross at her? Her punctuation <laughs> and her printing. And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, she, she's also saying, I, I was never taught anything yeah. and she's not wrong. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a situation where in the 16th century, Thomas More's daughters were very famously well-educated, although he also told his daughter she should only write things for he and her husband to read. Okay. But, but this, is, this drops off, especially under in, in Charles's reign. And, you know, it's, it's, you get into the sort of Jane Austen-y, play the piano, do some needlework, you know, a little bit of singing kind of thing. But even she says that was very cursory in my household. And so for her, human values, how she values people have to do with virtue. Virtue comes up all the time. Mm. Honesty comes up all the time. So there's certain things that she, she thinks are important about who she is and certain things that she doesn't think are important about what women have to be. And I just want to say something about her family here, too. So they're living under this big cloud all the time of the fact that her oldest brother was illegitimate. So her her mother gets pregnant and the dad, dad, unfortunately, gets in a duel and gets exiled for several years. So he doesn't even, I don't think he's, he think he's, he's his child till he, the child's like two. And then they get married and everything seems to be fine. But, you know, that's still back there. Right. And everybody knows that about them. So, she, I mean, she came into the world with this thing back there that everybody knows. And uh, again, she's she's really fighting an uphill battle socially from from her birth, not her fault. Yeah. And one last question, um, a slightly odd one. I found very confusing this thing about she was shy and yet she was also extraordinarily extrovert. And I find that a little bit difficult to work out. After you, the work you've done on her, did you like her? Did was she? Did you were you drawn to a subject for, uh, for that reason? I, I've also imagined what it'd be like trying to talk to her. So you know, you have that that awkward friend who is really smart, and but you have to kind of like shepherd them around when you're out in public because they say inappropriate things. And th this is this is this friend, and I think this is you know that the possible suggestions of of Tourette's or um, coprolalia is is part of the problem here. Right. It reminds me a little bit of, of actors who are actually sh very shy and big introverts. I'm thinking about someone like, even like Steve Martin is apparently quite shy and not funny at all when you talk to him because you have, you have the public persona and she, she and everybody had a public persona, right? She is just willing to stretch the boundaries of that more than other people were. Again, I think yeah. because of the freedom she was given as a, as a child to just um, be who she was. I've been watching a little bit of the new Bridgerton sequel to Charlotte, about Queen Charlotte, and just like every moment you're told what to do. So she didn't have that as a young person. Yeah. Her family could talk to her. She was not shy around them. But I think 
some people do this. It, it's sort of this weird exhibitionism thing because I, I can't express myself like mm. this. I will go way out uh, that way, that way. So the clothing and, you know, and what mm. she did. And then once she has William, that's a little globe, a little world, her blazing world that she is in and can do whatever she wants. I mean, she's the luckiest person in the world in so many respects. Even though from the marriage caused, you know, financial difficulties, they were always in debt. I mean, as you mentioned, poverty for them was being in a whole lot of debt and having a lot of nice things. But she was she was so lucky to have this person who would let her do exactly what she wanted to do. Yeah. So I, I think I think I would have, you know, yes. loved being around her. But you get a little exasperated by, you know, honey, what are you trying to say, dear? You know, spit it out at. So I, I feel sorry for her, but I also think she had an amazingly lot of luck in her life. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Margaret. And I'm really, I'm really enjoying reading about her and writing about her, actually. And I understand that you are also an author or in the process of publishing another book. I am. So I'm also, also a Shakespearean person, as everybody who does early modern literature, British literature okay. has to be a Shakespearean to some extent. But I have a book coming out next year from uh, McFarland Books in North Carolina on uh, gendered presentations and Shakespeare performances in the 20th century. And that really is a function of the way that we began to look at characters in Shakespeare and play with them, changing characters, sex, changing the sex of the actor, but then also how critical appreciation of this changed. Not unlike uh, Mm. Margaret, it wasn't a novelty anymore if Vanessa Redgrave played Prospero. It was, oh, how well is Tamsin right. Gregg doing Malvolia, right? So it, it's, uh, so the critical, critics have changed a great deal in 20 years. I'm using some amazing performances, had some wonderful interviews with some actors and directors, frankly, because of COVID. Uh, Nobody yes. was doing anything, so they would talk to me. And that is coming out in hopefully April 2024, and very excited about that. Well, we'll look forward to it. Sounds fantastic. Margaret, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. It's absolutely fantastic, and it's all much clearer to me now. And you paint a wonderful picture of her life. She's a fascinating person. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on here, David. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Just remains for me to thank Margaret again for her insight and to tell you all about the History of England Members series, which you can find available right now on the Members feed. I'll be talking about the Cavendish's life and times in an extended biography series of Shedcasts, since it is an amazing story. Her life is set against all that time of revolution, chaos, war, there's all of that, about a life at court in exile, then the restoration and the return of a loyalist family to their estates. There's all that, but it's also a period of intense discovery in science in particular, but also Margaret blazes a trail in women's writing and publishing across a whole range of topics, quite exceptional. Also a bit of a love story, I must admit. To hear all of this, if you are not a member, then why not think of becoming one? If you go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and hit the menu option for Become a Member, you will see the library of over 100 hours of podcasts that you'll have available to you, from Anglo-Saxon England to modern politics. And there's more coming every month, so not only on Margaret, but also the history of Scotland, and I'll be starting a new series on the history of early Britain. You will also, of course, be able to download the History of England free of adverts, And not only that, but you'll be supporting me in producing said History of England all the way until it stops. So, 
go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk, hit the menu option for become a member and see what you get. I hope you'll give that some thought. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Good luck and have a great week, everyone. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.